Hi, I'm Tess Vigland, and this is As We Work from The Wall Street Journal, our new show about the changing workplace and everything you need to know to navigate it. So tell me, has anything changed in your work life over the last couple of years? You get so used to being alone and being in your home and surrounded by comfort. And when it came to going back to work, it's like that motivation just kind of left. And even to this day, when things are starting now to get a little bit back to normal, I would say, it's still hard to find that motivation that we had before. That was Chrysula Papoutsakis from Montreal, Canada. She's a student and works as an administrative assistant for a COVID testing center. One of many, many of you will be talking to on this show. Coming up, our inaugural attempt to digest the enormity of change in our work lives since the start of the pandemic. We'll talk with two veterans of work-life coverage here at The Wall Street Journal. Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse. But will it pay off? Go inside the company in a new three-part series. From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. These last two pandemic years prompted a sea change in the American workplace, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. Working together became dangerous. Frontline workers faced hazardous conditions in their workspaces. Those working from home confronted the twin stresses of never being able to turn off and only seeing co-workers on a screen, while also being cooped up with housemates, kids, and spouses 24-7. Millions lost their jobs, some got them back or got new ones, or dumped work altogether. And all of that led to headlines we've been hearing for months. The coronavirus recession has really been a she-session. Millions of women have dropped out of that labor force because of health, uh, child care, and education challenges at home. Now, a lot of us are uh, still working from home, but imagine being able to do that while in the Caribbean. Thinking about quitting your job, ready to resign. If so, you could become part of what's being called the Great Resignation. We've got an unprecedentedly red-hot labor market. But beyond all that, we've also been engaging in something broader. You could call it a great rethink. You might not be quitting your job, but you might be reconsidering your relationship to it. In so many ways, we're living in the upside down, both in and outside of work. Stuff is just weird and unexpected. And that has an impact on everything from our workplace relationships to our mental health to the values we look for in the companies that employ us. Speaking of them, whoa, so much change for those executive suites, too. And it reaches far beyond the big quit. It's about how the office has become a a laboratory for the colossal social issues of the day. That's why we're launching this show, to talk about all those things, both philosophical and practical. So let's get to it and welcome two people who've been following these issues and trends for years. Nikki Waller is our coverage chief for the Life and Work team. Welcome. Hi, Tess. Thanks for having me. And Chip Cutter covers management for our business team. Great to have you as well, Chip. Thanks very much, Tess. It's great to be here. We're launching this new show um, at at a moment when people are reexamining their lives at work in a lot of ways. So set the stage, Chip. What's the biggest thorn for people right now? Well, I think one of the major questions right now is sort of who wins this face-off between employees and companies in terms of 
the return to office and just the way that people work. And we've heard from a lot of executives who say that they miss having their people in front of them. They miss offices being full of, of employees. At the same time, we know a lot of people have gotten comfortable working remotely. They enjoy doing this. They find they can sort of balance their work and lives in better ways than they could before. Uh, and so it's really kind of unclear who's going to be sort of the victor here and who's going to get what they want in terms of the way work evolves going forward. So I think that's one of the, the major questions. And then, of course, there are bigger questions, too, about the way that that everyone is paid, the way that people set their schedules, the way that people sort of navigate and think about work in their lives going forward. I mean, I think sort of everybody's reevaluated what work means to them and, and sort of how they fit work around their personal priorities. And adding to that, too, is people and workers specifically are less afraid of annoying their bosses. We see right now that the reason people aren't going back to offices voluntarily isn't necessarily COVID. It's because they don't feel like it. They have built their lives over the last couple of years in different ways. They've managed to fit in fitness or other things that they want to do. And so they just don't see the office as worth it, even as they're going back to restaurants and movie theaters and things like that. I think we will see more people back in the office, but the interesting idea below this change is that there is something that bosses want workers to do, and they're just not doing it because they don't feel like it. And there's no fear there. Well, that's that's to me the really interesting part because, I mean, for time immemorial, workers have had to do things that they don't feel like doing, right? I mean, it's your job. What is this sense of, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and do the thing that I need to do? Where is that coming from, this sense of power on the part of workers? I think so much of it comes from this hot labor market when there's still far more openings than there are applicants. And and so I, workers know that they sort of can get away with more than they may have in the past. I think we've heard that in just talking with employees at all sorts of different companies. We've heard that in our personal lives where people say things like, I don't really care if I get fired or I don't care if I <laughs> my boss gets mad at me. I can get another job somewhere else. There's a personal finance dimension to that, too. Lots of workers have spent the last two years at home not going out, not commuting. They have a lot of money saved. And so that fear of not getting a paycheck isn't as acute right now for some workers. To be sure, absolutely, there are people who are living paycheck to paycheck. This doesn't describe the whole workforce. But we hear this even in hourly wage-based workers, and into-knowledge workers and people who go into offices. Great point. But it seems to me that the that the key phrase that you had in there is right now. Yes. Because how long does this last? I mean, it, it's unclear if sort of the power dynamics might shift here if the economy worsens, for example, or if we're in a recession versus sort of the market that we're in right now. Right. It's true, although it's also important to remember that before the pandemic, there was a really strong hiring market. Companies have needed knowledge workers. They have needed skilled workers for a really long time. At the beginning of the pandemic, we saw that grind to a halt. For a second, we wondered if that uh, balance of power would change, and it sort of stalled. But then, no, workers got much more power, at least for now. And, of course, that can change if there's a recession. But it's important to also remember it's not just COVID that's been driving this. When we look at those who are remote working uh, versus those who are going back into the office, is is there any kind of breakdown of who's wanting to do what? Yeah, there are a lot of surveys showing who prefers the office and who prefers remote work. And I think we see 
bosses and managers um, and and in general, more men than women preferring in the office. And part of that could be because the office context is where managers and bosses got ahead. And at the same mm. time, we see women and workers of color often preferring the remote context, both for being able to fit the demands of your life alongside your workday, but also right. because there's there's sort of a safety there, especially because of these vulnerable conversations that have happened in a lot of workplaces about gender, about race, about caregiving, about burnout and mental health. You can have these conversations and then turn off the Zoom camera and not have to worry about running into mm. a colleague at the water cooler and maybe having an awkward exchange or just something that feels awkward to you. Hmm. Chip, I wonder if executives are paying attention to that. Like, is that something that they would take into account? Absolutely. It's it's something that's trackable, too. Companies are pulling reports to see who is badging into offices and who is not. I know some CEOs who get that report every Friday and look at it. They want to know sort of who's doing that. At the same time, we've seen companies really commit to Nikki's point about sort of creating equity in the workplace, regardless of where someone may be doing their jobs. They want to see rates of promotion for those who are in person versus those who are remote. That is something that companies can track. It's easy to do. Uh, and, and companies have said that they plan to do this going forward. So I think that's one way this sort of movement into workplace analytics, we've seen a lot of that in the past couple of years. But this is one where companies, without a lot of effort, can get a sense for sort of who's getting ahead, who's not, and how they can make corrections. Yes, hybrid equity is a new buzzword in management and something that companies are keeping a close eye on. Oh, interesting turn of phrase. Hybrid equity. Yeah, it comes up all the time. You hear it. It's it's in, right? You just see it yeah, constantly. It's everywhere. Yeah. And this is coming at a point in time when companies are really fighting for talent. How is that changing the thinking in the C-suite, how people are running their companies? It's been really interesting because when you talk to CEOs about this issue, this is something they really want to talk about. And that wasn't always the case even a couple of years ago. When you'd sit down with a CEO, they might want to talk about just sort of their core business issues. They might want to talk about sort of what they're seeing in their industries. Now it's so much about sort of what the workplace looks like, how they're navigating that. And we've seen a lot of interesting examples from how companies have sort of tailored their recruitment processes to try to just make it more worker-friendly. I think about um, something Amazon did for its software engineers. Last year, they rolled out a program called Best Fit, where they let software ans engineers answer all these questions, like, what kind of manager do you like? Where do you like to work? Do you like your manager to be in the same city huh. as you? Do you like to be the most junior or the most senior on a team? And of course, this is an industry, to Nikki's point, where there's been a hot demand for workers for years and years. Software engineers have been able to sort of pick their, their spots for a long time. But Amazon and others have realized we've got to get the right people in these jobs and make sure the jobs are a good fit so that they aren't tempted to want to leave. I think that that is sort of a big question for many CEOs is how do you retain the people that you have right now? Do you need to pay them differently? Do you need to offer pay raises more frequently as we've seen at some companies? Um, all of this I think is, is really right up there among top priorities among ex executives. It's a reason why a lot of companies have promoted uh, chief HR officers or hire new people into those roles. These are sort of essential questions for companies right now. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about how work culture is changing and not just because of hybrid work and what questions we'll be asking in the months and maybe years ahead. Stay with us. Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse, but will it pay off for the company, its investors, and for CEO Mark Zuckerberg? Over time, I hope that we are seen as a metaverse company. 
and I want to anchor our work and our identity on what we are building towards. Meta's trillion-dollar business and how we use the internet could hang in the balance. Go inside the company in a new three-part series, From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. We're talking with Nikki Waller and Chip Cutter, and I want to get your take on uh, another change that's happened in the workplace, which is that it's really functioning now as an epicenter of profound conversations about everything from culture uh, to diversity to mental health, even if those conversations are, are happening remotely. And Nikki, that's got to be an adjustment for both employers and employees. It's an adjustment for everyone. And one of the places where you see it playing out is even in job interviews. You have people who are interviewing for jobs at companies who would never bring up a topic like flexibility or mental health in the recruiting process, would never bring up the ability to work remotely while they were in the recruiting process. Maybe they would bring it up as they were close to an offer or negotiating to kind of feel a company out. But these questions are now at the front of the conversation, both from the employer and the employee. And I think it's led to some really interesting changes just in the ways that executives operate too, where we see, for example, the ways that CEOs are vetted now for their roles is different because they realize that they're going to need to address not only these workplace conversations, but also issues of politics in the workplace, of you know ESG issues, of you know race in the workplace. All of these issues that they may not have had to talk about in years past now feel very much sort of uh, you know relevant to CEOs. They know they're going to have to address this. I've even talked to CEO coaches who, for example, are sort of deploying the corporate equivalent of game tapes where they'll say, hey, I want you to watch how the Starbucks CEO answered questions as a result of an incident in Philadelphia years ago. And so that is it's, it's something that's very different now where, where you know, it just executives realize they have to prep for this. They have to be ready for it because employees want to know where executives and companies stand on these hot button issues. And it's forced companies to respond. And it's not to say that a board is choosing a CEO based on their social justice strategy over their ability to run a CapEx program, but you have to be really convincing and authentic on both. And that is something new that we see in the process. So CEOs are having to change how they manage their people and and workers are, you know, they're seeing colleagues Zoom backgrounds with with kids and, and cats and the bonds from being in the office may have been lost, but we're we're also seeing into people's lives, into their homes in new ways. And I wonder if either of you have some thoughts on what kind of seeing each other differently as humans means for how we relate to one another. Like in, in a very broad sense, is that change real? And is that something that can or should last? I don't know how long-lasting this might be. I mean, I, I've heard from some people who say, for example, I've stopped putting passive-aggressive lines in emails. I no longer say, as I previously mentioned in my note, it just feels sort of unnecessary right now in this moment when we all know everybody's fighting so much and dealing with so much in this current moment. Uh, but whether that lasts, I don't know. Seeing people as humans, I think, is really important. And one reason I think CEOs have been anxious for people to reconnect, even if that's coming together once a quarter in someone's backyard or at a fancy hotel or a restaurant, some sort of offsite, is because it's harder to quit a job when you're quitting your friends. Mm. 
when you know the people well, you know your colleagues, and you really like your colleagues, you maybe don't want to take that offer that pays you a little bit more or brings you to an entirely new place where there are lots of unknowns. And so I think that's been a real impetus for companies to say, how do we get people together? Because we have to keep those bonds alive. That will help keep people in these jobs and keep them from wanting to look elsewhere. Nikki? I like to think that we're long on humanity and 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 I think we are. I think a big change when you talk to workers about the dynamics of their meetings is that they really they start with a general question about how is everyone doing? And that question is sincere and it costs nothing. And like Chip says, it's really effective. It makes people feel whole with their colleagues. And so I think we keep some of that. I think, you know, the the old adage is that People leave managers, not jobs. And if people aren't willing to leave the person that they're working for, that's a real net gain for companies. So I think that there's an interest in continuing that. At the same time, we're in an inflationary situation right now. I think business could get a lot tougher in the coming year. And so it also depends on what kind of companies succeed and, and who which CEOs are valorized. Um, mm. I don't know if we go back to a, a Jack Welch model, but the, it could be a pendulum swing in the other way with these very sensitive kind of Alan Alda CEOs out there that a tougher tone starts to starts to take hold if other uh, if the economy doesn't go as well as it's been going. Well, before we go, uh, I want to come back to one of the big questions for this show. And an age-old question when it comes to work, that, that old work-life balance, right? Has the pandemic shifted those scales or is that still a mirage for most people, even though we had this notion of, well, maybe I can work from home, maybe I can have flexible work. It's been a buzzword for a long time, but it's still not fully realized. I think work-life balance is – the idea is kind of like a tightrope walk. It's, it's, a, it's a condition mm. you can experience for a very short period of time. And in the last bunch of years, companies started talking about work-life integration. And the pandemic has really been a lot of that. It is the work-life collision in a lot of ways. And your day is a smooshing together of – doing your laundry or soaking some dried beans and taking a bunch of Zoom calls. All of those <laughs> things, remote work has made all of those things possible in the same span of time. Um, what's so interesting right now is that it's a much longer span of time that, that you're working. You could be doing this from, from 7 a.m. until whenever you go to bed. But a lot of people are fitting in their lives in between all that. And if you talk to people about how they're fitting in the chunks of their life with the chunks of their work, you'll, you, you'll get a million different answers. And I think that's partly why there's so much anxiety about the return to office conversation, about returning to offices, because it seems like this balance is so fragile. If maybe you've been able to work and you've been able to be productive over the past two years, but you've also been able to soak those beans or go for a run or do something that felt like it helped you in your personal <laughs> lives, uh, people don't want to give that up. And they know that sort of once you add a commute back into this, once you sort of get back into the rhythm of going back into an office a couple of days a week, some of these personal uh, you know, activities might just go out the window. And I think that's why people are so sort of nervous about giving that up. They don't want to rock the boat right now. It can feel really destabilizing. And I've, I've soaked so many beans. <laughs> <laughs> Love an airline. I, I, I have to tell you, I laughed twice when Nikki first said it and then Chip, you said it too. I literally have beans soaking on my counter. We need to talk about this. I love an heirloom bean. The, the real winner of the pandemic is Rancho Gordo. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nikki Waller, Coverage Chief for our Life and Work team. Thanks so much. It's been terrific. Thanks, Tess. 
And Chip Cutter, covering management for our business team. Thank you as well. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Tess. Really appreciate both of you coming on to help us launch the show. What kind of beans are you soaking right now? (laughs) I'm soaking cannellini beans. Oh, yeah. Good one. Yeah. Strong. Stay with us for more As We Work. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. And finally, our pro tip. And we don't mean that in a snarky way, like, hey, pro tip, don't put your hand on a hot stove. No, we'll be chatting with journal reporters each week about some practical ways to navigate this strange new dynamic of work. So we're joined by Rachel Feinzig, WSJ's work-life columnist, and we're going to go over a guide to office etiquette at this, uh, shall we say, unique time in history when perhaps some of us have forgotten our manners after two years at home. Uh, Rachel, may I shake your hand? You want a hug? What? You got to ask first, Tess, you know, um, and I don't know. I might go for the, the elbow thing. Um, depend, depends on the day. Depends on what variant we're dealing with. Well, let's start with uh, the first thing that usually happens when you walk into a workplace. Uh, we've touched on this already, the greetings. This is this is kind of happening, I think, in the rest of life, too. We're having to feel out what our, what our friends are comfortable with, what our coworkers are comfortable with. How do we go about doing that? I mean, the idea is to ask. So you could say something like, it's so good to see you. Are we shaking hands? You know, just just pause and ask. And an etiquette expert I talked to made the point, he was like, I don't know that hugging was ever the best idea in the office to begin with, but it's it's definitely gotten weirder. I mean, obviously the handshake was for years, like the accepted, you know, encouraged corporate greeting. One aspect of, of COVID life that affected pretty much everyone around the globe, no matter what you do for a living, was a, a really a new sense of our proximity to others, like six feet, you got to be six feet away, right? And now we're in the time of, of vaccines and boosters, but it does seem like personal space has been redefined. So how do we deal with this issue, even if it's just, you know, in, say, a conference room? You can take a step back. You can just explain you're getting used to being around people again. You could say, you know, I'm a little more comfortable if we stand a little further apart. Another thing that people told me is you can always just confess your own awkwardness. It's not you, it's me. Like, the, you know, like I'm so weird. But But again, I would still be a little more comfortable if we could just stand a little further apart. And finally, what about social events? You know, are we back to kind of office related happy hours yet? And if I'm invited to one, but I'm still uncomfortable with being inside with other people, do I just back away slowly and get to the door and run? If you get somewhere and you're uncomfortable, like, you know, what what one of the experts I talked to said, you can leave. Like, this used to happen all the time. You'd get somewhere and something else would pop up. You can just, like, slowly leave. But it's, I mean, a lot of this is on the boss, right? Like, the boss should be kind of trying to pick up the vibe, and the boss should be willing to change on a dime and say, like, 
are people uncomfortable because we're indoors and it's more crowded than people were expecting? Can we shift this to outdoors? But you can just say, I'm a little rusty. We're all in this together, which is kind of nice. And so it's perfectly appropriate to just call out the elephant in the room. All right, Rachel Feinzig, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And that is all for this inaugural episode of As We Work. Next time on the show, I'll be telling you exactly how much money I make at this job. (laughs) Yeah, right. No. Uh, But somebody else will tell you her salary. And we'll hear about an ongoing push for pay transparency, plus a look at how that number on our paychecks affects our feelings of self-worth. And we would love to hear from you. You can reach out to us at aswework at wsj.com. Let us know your comments, concerns. Tell us your stories about work and careers. You can also find us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. And I'm at Tess Bigland. As We Work is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Charlotte Gartenberg is our producer. Amanda Llewellyn is our development producer. Jessica Fenton is our sound engineer. Our music was composed by Hansdale Sue. Kateri Yoakum is a fancy cocktail on a Friday evening. And The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Tess Viglund. See you next time. <laughs>